This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. A little later in the show today, after half past 12, you are off to Wickapen, which is about 200 kilometres southeast of Perth. You'll meet a farmer there who estimates he's now lost almost 1,300 sheep and lambs in the fire that ripped through his property just a few weeks ago. Also today, as you know, there are still a lot of fires burning all over Western Australia and it's been really difficult putting most of them out because of the ongoing hot, dry and windy conditions. But on some Gascoigne stations, firefighters have been struggling with, believe it or not, rain. Yeah, we're trying to escape a fire and we've got flames on either side. We're driving through water but we can't see where we're going because of smoke and heavy rain. So none of that makes any sense. But we experienced it certainly on one one afternoon there, and that didn't end the fire either. It got going again next morning. There's some pretty sad country out there at the moment, and the windy fires from early January, uh, some hot spots there that I've never seen, damage like what's happened back to sand dunes and a couple of black sticks. You'll hear more from Cameron and Teresa Tubby shortly. Their station is just south of Carnarvon and many of the pastoralists in that area have been battling some big fires for the last month or so. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour and starting off in the state's Midwest this afternoon because it's been more than 10 months since Cyclone Saroja hit that part of Western Australia. There was lots of damage to farms and the clean-up continues today. But as farmers start to look at replacing damaged houses, sheds and other infrastructure, some are starting to find they're suddenly underinsured. And that's largely because the building cost for labour and materials has increased significantly in the last 12 to 18 months. Mullawa farmer Rob Kitto had six large grain silos damaged in the cyclone, but his insurance payout will only cover the cost of replacing two. Yeah, when the cyclone came through, uh, we lost a few sheds and... um, Probably most importantly was our uh, grain handling facility that, um, you know, we put in a few years back and, uh, yeah, where we lost all of our six uh, big silos and also a a shed that uh, was earmarked for processing grain as well. The shed wasn't completely ruined. It was just the north end that took the brunt of the wind was all pushed in and, um, yeah, very badly damaged. Those six silos that you had, they're about 1,600 tonnes each. What's been the result of the insurance claim that you lodged and the payout? Have you been able to replace those silos? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Joe. Um, my main part of the message today, I think, is just to sort of like, you know, let other farmers know that insurance is very, very important and we cannot get complacent with you know, thinking that we've got enough cover and everything is covered. We're talking about the silos, you know, we they were all six were fully covered and, you know, like we sort of thought, yep, no, that's what replacement cost is going to be. You know, we review our insurance every year and we ticked off and, yep, that's the current value, that's that's all good, that's no worries. 
you know, with agreed value, we knew what the cost of the silos were going to be and we knew what the cost of uh, construction was and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, we thought we'd be pretty safe with doing that. But um, in hindsight, it should have been replacement value. Yeah, insurance company has paid out. Um, they took out. They took a took a fair while to get to that point where they were happy that um, yeah they're fully damaged and um, they had to pay out. Didn't pay out the full amount. They won't pay that out until um, there's been replacements built, and uh, you know that's going to take another probably six eight months before that sort of process happens. But what has also happened is that um, since the cyclone and probably started before. The cyclone happened with the uh, advent of um, COVID, I guess. Um, a lot of things have increased in value very quickly. And, um, yeah, we're sort of um, finding ourselves that we're underinsured. Ten months on from the cyclone, you've received a payout, but that doesn't cover the cost of replacing those six silos. Yeah, that's right, Joe. yeah. The silos that we need to replace them with are actually of better quality to withstand stronger winds and they are more expensive um, to start with but uh, we also need to replace our concrete that the silos were, um, were were all fixed to because that's been damaged in the storm as well and it just goes on and on because uh, you know when you think about these things you sort of think oh well look if there is a bit of a wind or a bit of a storm you know we might lose a roof or a few side sheets or whatever you know like it's um yeah that can be easily fixed you sort of don't think about losing your concrete as well mm. because, um, you know, there's 60-odd tonnes of concrete under these silos. and um, you know, So, so how many of your silos are you going to be able to replace based on the payout that you've received? You're expecting to receive another portion of that payout once replacements are, in, are built, but you had six insured. What's going to be covered? How many? Uh, we will be replacing those with two. Two. Yeah, two the same size, so two more at 1,600 tonnes. Can I ask what sort of figures we're talking about here? The silos that we lost, they were insured. Uh, basically, the steel work was insured and the uh, the cost of a contractor to come and build them. So each silo was insured for uh, roughly $150,000. And now it's going to cost um, about... Uh, $350,000 to um, replace the concrete, construct the silos, but this is each, and um, replace the silo. So around about $350,000 now for a silo. I bet that was a real shock when you got those figures in front of you, to put it mildly. I, yeah, look, Joe, it was, and, and still is to a certain point, but you know, we're seeing the same sort of thing with uh, shed replacements as well, where mm. You know, shed builders are reluctant to quote on sheds. They can't quote today in six months' time when they come and build the shed that, oh, well, actually steel's gone up another 25% or wages or this or that or whatever has gone up and I can't actually build your shed now. I imagine, too, you're now at the point where you're starting to think about receiving your next insurance premium. Have you got that yet? Uh, no, not yet, Joe. Um, yeah, look, our review's next month. And, um, you know, look, we have had a lot of conversation with our insurance people uh, over the last 10 months. And um, it is sort of going to be a bit scary, I think, to sit down and actually go through all that and see what the, um, see what the overall premium is going to be um, moving forward. 
I have spoken with other farmers and have, you know, noticed in media that, uh, you know, insurance premiums are absolutely skyrocketed. But I think most importantly, Joe, in one conversation that we have had with our insurance people is that, you know, there are some insurance companies now that are um, reluctant to insure in the Midwest region. I think that's scarier than high price insurance. And are you hearing that's because of Saroja? Uh, yeah, that's where the um, that's where that's where the finger has been pointed at. You know, some companies have had some pretty big claims, I guess, and they're not prepared to um, to share the good times with the bad times, so to speak. Rob Kiddo, who farms southeast of Mullawar, so about 100 kilometres inland from Geraldton, speaking to Joe Prendergast. 13 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Keen to hear your insurance experience as you clean up after Cyclone Saroja. Is your situation similar to what Rob has just explained to you or have you got something different to deal with? And what are your premiums looking like? Have you done the review and what does it look like now? Are those figures going up? What is your story? Can you share it this afternoon here on The Country Hour on text 0448 922 604. 14 past 12. You're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Well, the warning signs have been around for a few weeks now and today in the Perth metro area, the price of fuel hit the $2 a litre mark and it's hovering around that mark pretty much right across the state. ABC News business editor Ian Verenda says these prices have been about a year in the making, going right back to when the world was just starting to come out of the COVID pandemic recession. What happened then was the world wasn't really ready for the for the uh, rapid bounce back, and so we've seen uh, shipping problems with getting stuff around the world. We've seen uh, you know places shut down their production and then have to quickly ramp up. So there's been a whole range of events, and look, it's not just petrol. It's it's a, there's been an energy crisis globally that's affected uh, gas. Uh, oil and, of course, coal as well. So we've got coal at record prices at the moment. You know, everyone's talking about the death of coal. Well, thermal coal is at record levels. Uh, oil prices are shooting the lights out above 100 US dollars a barrel. So that means that we're going to continue seeing high petrol prices and gas prices overnight shot up 13% because of this ongoing um problem with uh, the Ukraine and Russia and America. And US President Joe Biden says Russia's invasion of Ukraine has started and the Russian government is going to be cut off from Western financing just to send an unmistakable message to the Kremlin. And just a few hours ago, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced Australia will join its Western security allies, announcing its own sweeping economic sanctions against Russia. Mark McKenzie is the CEO of the Australasian Convenience and Petroleum Marketers Association. He says the threat of conflict in this region has sparked fears about markets market access to Russia's massive oil supplies. And that's why you're going to be paying a lot for petrol. Russia is the second biggest producer of the oil in the world. So they produce 9.8 million barrels a day. We produce, by comparison, 350,000. So they produce more in a day than we produce in a month. So it's the second biggest oil producer If there's a risk of them being in in a conflict and therefore distracted from producing and exporting oil, 
the market factors into risk premiums. And that's what we've seen happen since just before Christmas as debate about stability in Europe um, has hit the airwaves and the market has factored an increase. And if I look at that increase alone, that has lifted our wholesale price from $1.40 at the start of December to $1.68 where it is now. So there's been a 20% increase just in the last eight weeks because of the risk of conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Where to from here, do you think? <laughs> I suppose that's a question I'm getting quite often, and it, it's almost a point here of because we're in uncharted territory, it's a fool's game to predict where we're going. But it would be fair to say that, look, in the next six to eight weeks, all you can actually see at the moment are risk, and that tends to result in upward pressure on pricing. That said, if there was to be a situation where the Ukraine-Russia crisis was resolved in the near term, you would expect some downward pressure on fuel prices, but you're still going to have that underlying effect of COVID. So I think there's a sense of saying we've got a bit of a spike associated with the geopolitical conflict, but we've got an underlying pressure that is associated with COVID. So it's, you know, it's a horrible thing to be telling everybody, but at the moment there's just no real sign of relief in sight in the near term in terms of global prices. From what I've seen with reports on, on fuel prices rising by as much as they have, they're, they're very much outstripping inflation. And do you think the government is going to be concerned about this going forward as well? Look, I think as we go into 2022, um, all of us as consumers are just watching everything we use go up in terms of prices. Part of that's due to things like commodity prices, which we're seeing are things like copper and iron ore for building materials, petrol for driving around. We're also seeing supply chain pressures as the world's um, transport logistics system is struggling to cope with surging demand. So within that context, we are definitely seeing inflation pressures and petrol is going up fast, but we're seeing the same thing with building materials, timber, pallets for grocery. So we really are in a space here that we're recovering from a pandemic. We've seen strong investment of governments. That's actually driven our production increases. And we've actually got a whole lot of people that aren't travelling that had money to spend. So the challenge, I think, for us in the near term is what that looks like as a broader mix. And I'll let those with much more experience than I have in economics and people like the Reserve Bank Governor and so on to comment on that. But it's fair to say that petrol prices is in the mix. We're very conscious of that as an industry. It certainly doesn't do us any favours. But by the same token, we're tapped into a global market. Australasian Convenience and Petroleum Marketers Association CEO Mark McKenzie with Cassie Huff. 19 past 12 at half past 12 today, an update from the newsroom and then taking a look at weather conditions right across the state. First though, a young Indigenous woman who works at Rio Tinto says racism is rife at the global mining company and this follows the release of a recent report commissioned by Rio and headed by former Sex Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick which found sexism and bullying were systemic across the company's work sites. Sarah Bergman is a Nigana Nunyu woman who holds a degree in commerce management and has worked at Rio for five years. She says despite her experiences at Rio, she wants it to make it clear that the company has given her some incredible work experiences. I started in a people and strategy team working out how we were going to look after people as we were making our sites autonomous through autonomous trucks and drills. 
I moved into business improvement transformation programs within finance. Um, I'd worked on the next evolution of our heritage systems and processes after um, Drukhan Gorge. And then I'd been able to work in culture design programs, looking at how do we get the best out of our people for new deposits that we'd found within Australia. So really, really interesting work and really interesting problems to solve. I'm very, very grateful to have been given those opportunities with them. And at what point then did you start to notice some racism being levelled at you? The reality is that it's been my experience since the day that I got there. Um, I remember in my first two weeks with the business, I'd had experiences within the department around the way that people were speaking around me or about me or about Aboriginal people. And I was questioning myself as to if I was being too sensitive or had no one ever taught these people how to work with Aboriginal people or Aboriginal professionals. What were they saying? There were people who, from within HR departments, would point at me from across the table and say, you're double diversity, that's why we will like you. So many, the comments that hurt were the many small comments or undertones of conversations that would discredit me or take away my experience or my expertise to say that I'd gotten opportunities because I was Aboriginal or because I was a woman or because at the end of the day I ticked two boxes. At the very beginning, I decided that it was actually that people didn't have enough information, that people hadn't been trained in the area um, and that we just needed to learn because there are so many incredible people within Rio and one of the reasons why it's taken me so long to speak out about it is because I do have personal relationships with all of the people that have made me feel uncomfortable. I do like them as people. They're good people. But the behaviour is not appropriate at work. Sarah, did you call it out? At the time, it's really difficult. So sometimes I would. There's been a couple of occasions where I've pulled someone aside later and told them that it wasn't appropriate and I didn't feel comfortable. And those conversations have gone really well for me. But more times than not, it's the pure shock of being in the situation because I was around someone that I felt I could trust. I think these situations have happened for me in friendships as well, um, where because I develop a friendship with someone or trust or rapport, people sometimes feel as though it's okay to then make jokes because we understand each other and because we're friends, it's okay to joke about that stuff. But it's never okay to joke about racism because racism's not a joke. When you explained to people that what they were saying was inappropriate and that it was hurtful and that it basically was racism, how did they react? I think most people have a similar reaction, which is to apologise, to justify what they were saying or why they would come to those conclusions, um, that they didn't mean any harm by it. Um, And I know that these people don't mean harm when they say these things to me. They genuinely just do not understand. What hurts is when you continue to try to educate people and they don't listen to what you're saying 
you feel like you're not heard or it feels like actually with some people you can't educate them. And and Sarah, experiencing this on a, a daily basis, did that start to impact your ability to do your job properly? Did it impact on your productivity at work? Absolutely. I, for a very, very long time, started to almost gaslight myself into thinking that I was a terrible worker that didn't have a good work ethic. And I had spoken to a number of people at work that I was really struggling to concentrate. I was really struggling to do work. And I think a lot of the time people's reaction is you're being hard on yourself. You're a perfectionist, all of these kinds of things. But I was raising it because it was a real issue for me Mm. and I needed help. And those kinds of comments, although very nice, didn't help me in any kind of way to change the situation. Um, So it wasn't until a few months later when I just happened to be sitting on a different floor in a, in a different building for the day that I noticed a huge change in my productivity. Um, and when I left the office the day, that day, I thought to myself, what was the difference? Um, and the only difference was that I was around people that I felt that I could trust, that I felt safe with. I had done more work on that day. I'd done the amount of work that it had been taking me two weeks over the last six months in the space of half a day. And that's when I realized actually how severely not feeling safe at work impacts people. Have you uh, made a complaint? I have in the last two weeks officially raised it with the company, but it's not something that I had intended to do because, again, I, I care about the people that I work with. Speaking out about this was never to punish anyone or to, I didn't want to have a negative consequence for anyone. I just wanted to make sure that it didn't happen around our business anymore, Um, especially because of the amount of people that have reached out to me in the last 24 hours to say how many times that they've read my column because they had felt all of those same things but they didn't feel like they were in a position to be able to speak about it because of the repercussions, what it would mean for them in their teams or in their workplace or for their jobs. How do you actually make meaningful change? I mean, what's the solution here? I think that for a very long time, we've focused on the perpetrators and correcting their behaviour, punishing them or giving them moments where they can turn around and change. And I think that that's the wrong approach now. I think that it means that less people feel comfortable speaking out because we do care about the people in the business and we wouldn't want to, many people wouldn't want to negatively impact someone's life. Some people might want someone to feel the consequences and that's okay as well. But for a lot of people, I think that the focus should really be about keeping the victims safe moving them into new teams, giving them new roles or opportunities where they can feel comfortable again. Go back then and educate the teams where they've come from. But there needs to be less focus on getting the victims to educate the perpetrators and educating the rest of the workforce. I think we need some self-initiated learning and there needs to be an industry standard across all of the mining industry of what respect at work looks like across bullying, sexual harassment and racism because it's not an issue just at Rio. It's an issue across the board with all of the mining companies and we've known that for a very long time.
Sarah Bergman talking about the racism she's experienced at Rio Tinto with Nadia Mitsopoulos. 28 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. 150 plants have been stolen from Tasmania's Institute of Agriculture, but I think the robbers might be disappointed with the stash. Dr Beth Penrose is in charge of the trials and thinks the plants were stolen because they look a lot like marijuana. But they're not. They're actually industrial hemp plants being used in a scientific trial site in Launceston. Yeah, they took the heads off. They're they're exactly the same species, but they are bred to have low THC levels, which is the like psychoactive compound. So they they all have um, less than one percent um, THC content, and so they're not going to get you high. So they look very very similar. I suggest that they thought that it was medicinal cannabis, and they took it because they thought that it was going to be good to sell and to use as a drug. But unfortunately for them, it's going to do absolutely nothing for them. Not really any better than smoking, I don't know, barley or wheat or something. So a lot of good research going on there and hopefully no more thefts and perhaps getting this message out might help uh, avoid more in the future. Yeah, I mean, this research is, is pretty important for the Tasmanian hemp growers. It's supported by the Tasmanian Hemp Association and AgriFutures and We've put a lot of time and effort in, and it's just really disappointing to see that someone's, you know, cut the fence and got in and tried to steal some of our plants. It's also absolutely no advantage to them whatsoever because you can't even use the plants for what I suspect they want to use it for. So it's really problematic for us, and it's not particularly good for them either. So, yeah, please don't steal our plants or wreck our trials. If you want to know more, just let us know. Dr Beth Penrose, a researcher with the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, talking to Fiona Breen about those stolen industrial hemp plants. 29 to 1 and time for an update from the newsroom with Herlin Kaur. Good afternoon, Belinda. The Australian Medical Association says the threefold increase in WA's daily coronavirus case numbers is consistent with expectations. There have been 643 new local cases recorded today and two travel-related infections. The AMA WA branch says that's in line with projection the state will record thousands of cases in March and shows the border reopening next week is the right move. Former West Australian Treasurer Troy Buswell has pleaded guilty to three domestic violence charges relating to an incident involving his ex-wife. Buswell was originally facing six charges and his trial in the Perth Magistrates Court had been due to resume today. At the start of proceedings, however, he changed his pleas to three of the counts to guilty. The remaining three charges were discontinued. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison says further sanctions against Russia are likely after unveiling an initial package of measures targeting individuals and banks. Australia will impose travel bans and financial sanctions on Russians of strategic and economic significance to their nation. Sanctions will also be applied against the transport, energy, telecommunications, oil, gas and mineral sectors in two breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine. And a full bulletin to you at one o'clock. Thank you so much for the update, Helen. 28 to 1. Off to Katanning for a look at the sheep market results today. And very shortly, just taking a look at the fire 
going back a couple of weeks now in the Wickerpen area, so 200 k's sort of southeast of Perth, and one farmer in that region losing as many as 1,300 sheep and lambs in those fires. And then further north in the Gascoyne, the challenges of keeping those fires under control. First, though, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Luke Huntington with you this afternoon. Luke, what's the story in the Southwest Land Division this afternoon and for the rest of the week into the weekend? Yeah, so it's going to be relatively quiet um, throughout the week. So um, today we've just got just some chance of some showers will drizzle just along uh, the near coastal parts between Augusta and Esperance uh, today. So only only very light falls in that. Um, and we do have a trough deepening just inland from the west coast. So um, that's causing a period of gusty easterly winds in the morning and similar conditions again uh, tomorrow. So that uh, trough will deepen even more. And we'll see those hot dry conditions with gusty easterly winds pushing in right across the southwest land division um, and we could see some uh, drizzle again along the southwest coast and an up level trough may initiate some um, some mid-level thunderstorms just near south coastal areas between Albany and Esperance and just a little bit through inland parts there uh, during the day but they would be fairly high based and not generate much rainfall so there could be just a bit be a bit of lightning strikes associated with them in that area tomorrow. Um, And then heading into Friday, we'll see the trough deepen uh, near the west coast, but it will start to move east uh, during the day. And once again, we could see some mid-level thunderstorms associated with that trough uh, along the south coast there. So again, there could be some um, high base thunderstorms with not much rainfall and possible dry lightning, So, which is not really good news for starting any fires, but the risk is there and uh, heading into Saturday the trough will continue to move east and that mid-level thunderstorm activity will move into eastern parts of the southwest land division so around the Esperance area and uh, by uh, Sunday uh, that mid-level storms would have uh, contracted away into uh, the Euclid so um, so not too much going on in the next few days just hot dry conditions and those mid-level storms. Uh, just quickly, while we're in the Southwest Land Division, Luke, the Rotto swim this weekend and the head of the river. Curious to know the conditions. Uh, so, is that on Saturday morning? Is it? I think it is. The, I think it kicks off Saturday. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it is. Okay, so I'm assuming it's on Saturday morning. So um, it looks like the winds will probably be quite fresh uh, in that early morning period. So we're going for south to south easterly winds and around 15 to 20 knots. Um, And then it looks like quite a fresh afternoon sea breeze, um, maybe 20 to 25 knots. So um, the winds are not looking ideal, so it could be a little bit um, choppy and rough. Oh, I'm glad I'm not in it. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, those winds, what time are those winds coming in? Um, so we'll probably see those fresh winds uh, all day, So, um, but the sea breeze will be the, at its freshest um, during probably during the late afternoon, so probably between 5 and 8 o'clock, somewhere around there. Great. Thank you for that. And looking into northern and eastern parts, Luke, what can you see? 
Yeah, so up in the north, we are seeing the usual seasonal showers and thunderstorms uh, over the Kimberley today. Um, any thunderstorms that do form should be pretty gusty. And um, we could see thunderstorms just extend into uh, eastern parts of the Pilbara region today as well. But they should be fairly high based and um, should be fairly dry. No, not much precipitation associated with that. Uh, heading into tomorrow, little change really. So thunderstorms right throughout the Kimberley and over the far northeastern uh, Pilbara area. Once again, thunderstorms should be pretty gusty through the Kimberley area. And uh, into Friday, um, it's pretty similar once again. Through, throughout the Kimberley, we'll see some storms and the far eastern Pilbara. By Saturday, uh, the thunderstorms, not only through the Kimberley, but throughout most of the northern uh, Pilbara, just along a trough there. And also on Sunday, with a trough remaining near the Kimberley, and Pilbara Coast, we might see some thunderstorms extending right from the Kimberley right through the, uh, the, the Pilbara region, but not really too much rainfall for the, uh, for the actual Pilbara region itself. And the warnings this afternoon? Uh, for the warnings, we've got, just got a strong wind warning out for pretty much the whole of the West Coast um, today and for tomorrow. And then we've got the fire weather warning out, which is, just covers a severe fire danger for um, parts of the inland southwest land division and also the Gascoigne and Goldfields. Thank you very much for that, Luke. 22 to 1, Richard Hudson here now with a look at the rainfall figures. Yeah, Rotto Swim, the weaker and slower you are, it's the cruelest event because the longer you take in the Rotto Swim, normally the winds get stronger and stronger like someone's just cranking up the speed on the treadmill. Uh, hardly any rain at all in the last 24 hours, only in the Kimberley, Doongan 9 mils and Margaret River Airstrip with 3 and that's it. Apart from that, no, nowhere recorded any rain at all. Still a fair few fires burning around Western Australia, as you mentioned. A lot are at, at bushfire advice level. But uh, a Wickipin farmer estimates he's now lost almost 1,300 sheep and lambs in the fire that ripped through his property a few weeks ago. You might remember hearing Angus Armstrong on the Country Hour just after that fire on September the 6th of February. At that stage, he thought he'd lost about 200 sheep in the fire, which was bad enough. But since then, they've had to make the tough call to put down over a 1,000 more sheep that have suffered burns. So, yeah, initially I think my expectation was uh, 200, which I thought was, was over-exaggerating a little bit, I thought, oh, hopefully. But in the end, especially over, we lost them over the next few days, we have lost just under 1,300 in the end. Uh, a few of those are, are young lambs, but the majority were breeding ewes. So some are actually scanned pregnant, I think due a bit over a month's time to lamb. So they were pretty hard hard losses to to see and obviously yeah, the suffering with the sheep trying to euthanise and, and get that sorted as quickly as we could. Uh really didn't have much time to think, you just had to get the job done uh, as fast as we could. It was going into dark and even the wind was still we had to wear fire goggles because of the sand uh, we're still buying off the paddocks. Obviously, they're paddocks by then. Um, so, yeah, quite a bad job. I had a, a, a mate helping me as well. So just as fast as we could get that done um, that night. And then, obviously, the huge numbers were over the next few days. And generally, neighbours neighbors came in and uh, got that job done. I didn't have to really be around too much, much for that, uh, which is a, a nice thing. To avoid when they're your own sheep. Absolutely, yeah, that's really nice of them to come over and help out with that job. Yeah, it was a pretty hard job for them as well. I think uh, definitely over the few days, 
it was wearing in a bit, a bit of an emotional toll on them as well. So are you still having to put sheep down now? It's been almost two weeks, I guess. It's hard to keep track of time, but is, is that process still ongoing? Uh, yeah, I have had to do five of the lambs yesterday, but that's sort of, yeah, further down the track. They're just mainly with their hooves. Yeah, it looks like there's, yeah, our sheep's still infection and uh, the sores are sort of coming out. Uh, I did find another 18 used, but they were in like tree lines. So as we're cleaning up and I've only really just got around uh, with the assessor yesterday and sort of found these extra sheep. So they were killed in the fires. But yeah, there's only the odd one now that's still got an issue since the fire. Sheep and grain farmer Angus Armstrong, whose property is about 30 kilometres east of Narragin. So we're talking about 180 kilometres southeast of Perth. Just talking to Georgia Hargraves, Hargreaves about how he has now lost almost 1,300 sheep due to that fire from two weeks ago. Angus Armstrong's um, pretty passionate about his trees and vegetation as well. He estimates more than 50,000 have been planted uh, on his property and they've been burnt. The fire also took out lots of big old trees in remnant vegetation, so some big salmon gums and white gums. He hopes to get good germination from some of those trees this year and he also wants to um, start planting again. I think he had plans to put in about 60,000 more trees when we chatted to him a few weeks ago. But the Southwest Catchment Council is seeking donations to help bushfire-affected farmers like Angus to rebuild fencing which protects native bushlands from being damaged by livestock. Linda Metz is the sustainability and environmental lead for the council and she says often this type of fencing around remnant vegetation areas is not generally covered under insurance. So it is quite time critical because what happens is post-fire, of course, anything that regenerates and turns green, especially after a bit of a rain, all of the animals, including things like sheep or cattle, may actually start to move into these remnants and start eating the vegetation because it's nice and soft and green and, and quite palatable. So it's really important that in areas where you've got that remnant vegetation and we want to continue to protect that, is to try and get those fences, those stock exclusion fences back up as quickly as possible to really protect that remnant post-fire. So how do farmers apply for this money? Is that how it works? They can apply for it? No, in this instance, what we're going to be doing is we've already got a range of farmers who have already been impacted um, and, and they've actually been previous recipients of funding uh, specifically to address environmental impacts on their property. So, for example, installing stock exclusion fencing or undertaking revegetation work, so replanting areas using native vegetation to try and improve habitat values. So, these farmers have already made a commitment, they've already put in the hard work and they've subsequently lost that. So what we're trying to do with this is really try and, um, because those farmers have no other way to get that money back or get that infrastructure back without a cost to themselves, which they're already dealing with the cost of a a lot of loss of livestock, um, loss of other property and infrastructure. So a way to try and, I guess, offset some of that loss to them is we're seeking donations from people in our community. Um, They can come and donate 
uh, to the Southwest Catchment Council's Southwest Environment Fund. It's a tax deductible donation, uh, and we will then basically reallocate that money to those affected farmers. Linda Metz is the Sustainability and Environment Lead at Southwest Catchment Council, speaking to Georgia Hargreaves. 16 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And those fighting fires in Western Australia's Gascoyne region have been facing slightly different challenges. Thunderstorms and rain have been making it difficult for them to get the fires under control. And thousands of hectares of pastoral land have been burnt just this month. Some are still burning. More than 40,000 hectares are thought to have been lost in the area around Warunga, Mido and Wurrimal stations. And there are also other fires still burning north in the Gascoyne. Teresa and Cameron Tubby run Waruga Station, just south of Carnarvon. And they also run nearby Windry Station. And it sounds like they've had a particularly tough and challenging time fighting these fires. Yeah, we're trying to escape a fire and we've got flames on either side. We're driving through water but we can't see where we're going because of smoke and heavy rain. So none of that makes any sense. But we experienced it certainly on one one afternoon there, and that didn't end the fire either. It got going again next morning as much as we hoped. But that was the end of it. The grass dried out by mid-morning and the stumps hadn't stopped burning and away it went. How's the country looking at the moment? Uh, pretty devastated. The burnt country is on previously burnt country from... The bad fires in 2012, I think they were. Some of that section has had other burns as well. So there's some pretty sad country out there at the moment. And the windry fires from early January, uh, some hot spots there that I've never seen. Damage like what's happened back to sand dunes and a couple of black sticks. After having the season that the region had, how do you feel today, you know, aside from exhausted, I'm sure, but how do you feel when you look out and see the land as it is? Devastating, really, isn't it? It's devastating, but it's mixed blessings, I think, Michelle. We always knew we were seeing ducks and we could have put in as many firebreaks as we liked, but um, Nothing it, stopped it was really not, not much help to us until we we knew what was going to happen with the fires but the mixed blessing is is what's left on the station both stations there's still good feed better feed than we've probably ever had with what's left still so it's not like we've lost everything and even these recent rains in amongst the fire not that we've had much time to take much notice but in the last day now that things have calmed down we can look around a bit and the unburned country is looking really good there's green grass coming up the perennials are all greening up the bush is looking good it's just that burnt country is just totaled and you know it's going to take you know another decade or more before we start seeing that get back to where we thought we had it in a good position before this you said about a hundred thousand acres or so was burned what sort of percentage of your property is that uh that's a hundred thousand across the whole fire, front, oh, the whole fire yeah, so it's a, about 60,000 on yours, was it? Yeah, for us, that's, I think, probably about a quarter of, of the property. And and were any livestock impacted? <laughs> uh, that we don't know. We do know uh, Waddy from Doorwara, when he was in the plane, managed to muster a mob out in front of the fire. So he, got, he saved a good couple of hundred there. 
volunteer firefighters managed to cut a couple of fences, got a few other mobs out that were also in front of the fire. Had all the water points set so they could walk out. Yeah, we had we had the trap yard set a good few days beforehand, so we're hoping anything we that was in that fire zone to come in for a drink, we could trap them and move them further north. But the problem was with that rain, they were happily drinking in clay pans and things, so we couldn't really get them in. But even so, even now, we're still seeing sheep come in off the burnt country. Not big numbers, but they're coming in, but they're not they're not damaged. So we don't really know what we've lost, Michelle, but we're hoping that we managed to get most out um, before things went bad. Yeah, that must be a relief. Uh, definitely a relief, but yeah, a little daunting not knowing what actually has happened. You mentioned the community response there, and you know, Waddy on the in the sky, and and you know, volunteer um, firefighters that kind of thing helping out. What was the community response like in in both fires, but in particular this most recent one? Oh, both both fires, yeah. As, as always, Michelle, everyone jumps in and, and goes for it. We've got neighbours that weren't impacted that he, you know, they were away for three days. His machines ended up that far away that we've we've had to transport it back. Yeah, so our neighbours at Adagi, Warrimal, we're going flat out. Marin, the neighbours up here, bought machinery in and out. They've, they did damage as well, so gear. Coral Coast helicopters yeah. came down, he did two days, plus he bought another one of his pilots with him on the on another day. And on the very first day on that Sunday, Justin was actually out raking and using the helicopter to try and fan it, even in early in the morning before we even got home. So he was, yeah, he yeah was I've never, never seen a helicopter put fires out. He was doing that as well. So, and Dilwara, obviously, they, they came with um, with their dozers and, and um, people. So they were jumping on machines and, and going for it as well. But the locals committed what they could to it. But none of us are ever geared up for, for anything like this, Michelle. All our gear is small, too small, probably too old. Ideal for what we use it for. But to throw it into that situation and, and hope. We're going to hold it is is a big ask, but that didn't stop everyone having a crack at it. And we certainly made a difference with what we had until the big year turned up. We had luck with people as well. We had some close calls. Some very close calls with people. It's, yeah, one of the loader loader um, the young Matt from next door at Marin had to be rescued off the top of his loader from the with the chopper. So Justin rescued him because the flames were burning over that. And we had. On Sunday late afternoon, there was people going everywhere. We had Corey here from the Dadji um, in one unit. We had other units and there was vehicles going everywhere because the wind kept changing the fire front and people were getting caught. So that was pretty hairy that afternoon. So, yeah, there's been a fair, fair bit of luck. And you mentioned, you know, a couple of people there, but they're, they're, they had their own fires to deal with at one point as well. I mean, I think the, the Durawara fire, for example, is still an, at an advice level. Um, so the whole region has really been hit and still trying to help each other out. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's horrible, Michelle. We're, we're constantly looking on the horizon for smoke going up at the moment. It's, you don't get a lot of chance to relax and... You know, Dilawarra have been belted twice in this week. They've had, if not not two on their place, they've certainly had two very close to their place, which they've been involved in. Mito, you know, they've been touched up again. They got belted again, again in January. Yeah, no, I think there's probably a lot of nervous and pretty worn out people at the moment. How are you going, the both of you, your, your family, your staff? How, how are you 
feeling and sort of re- recovering in the aftermath? Mm. Oh, no. I think we've worn out. I think we've worn everyone. Everyone else is worn out. We're worn out. We're just hoping this this last I don't know how many weeks we are now. Eight weeks since since things started going bad around here. We hope that might be the end of it and things might turn around and start improving. But again, we just we you, know, you think back as what luck we have had. I don't think we've lost a lot of stock. Stock are still in excellent condition. They're as best we've ever seen them. And, and what remains of both stations are in really good condition. So we're hoping, you know, we'll get through to a, a winter and start making a recovery. Cameron and Teresa Tubby from Warunga Station, south of Carnarvon, and they also own Windry Station in the Gascoigne. They were speaking to Michelle Stanley about those bushfires in the region. And worth noting that there's still a bushfire advice warning in place for parts of Durawara and Yelbalgo stations. There's more on this story online. Michelle's put it together for you. It's up now. Just search ABC Rural Gascoigne Fire to read through that in some more detail. You're tuned to the Country Hour. It's seven minutes to one. And earlier in the hour, you heard from Mullawa farmer Rob Kitto, who was just giving you an insight into just how much the price of building materials has increased. He lost six silos in Cyclone Saroja when it hit the Midwest in April last year. And the insurance payout for those six silos will now only cover the cost of replacing two. Well, Peter from Minganew has called through and he got a fixed price quote for a shed about a month ago after the cyclone came through, which came in at $187 per square metre. And about five months, the insurance replacement value of the shame shed was $250 a square metre, just to highlight how the cost of those materials is skyrocketing. Six minutes to one and not far away from the details of the Catanning sheep market. Just before that, though, an outbreak of anthrax has killed sheep near Swan Hill in northern Victoria. Authorities have placed one farm in quarantine and are vaccinating the remaining sheep in the flock just to protect them from the bacteria. Victoria's Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Graham Cook, says they haven't had any anthrax cases for a few years. We actually have confirmed at least five cases, but in a a relatively large flock, so it's actually a small percentage. And anthrax does happen from time to time in certain parts of Victoria, the northwest and the north. And we haven't had a case confirmed since about uh, 2019. So it's something that happens from time to time. And uh, we already have uh, people on the ground responding to it The animals died, of course, and uh, those carcasses have been removed and a a vaccination program has already taken place. Can you explain what anthrax is and how animals contract it? Yes, uh, anthrax is a bacteria. It's called uh, Bacillus anthracus, which kind of is a representation of what it actually looks like shape-wise. But it's very, very unusual in that Um, It can form spores and then last in the ground for decades. And we believe that we've seen this current set of cases because uh, when the ground is dry, animals dig a little bit deeper 
Uh, and unfortunately, uh, that's manifested in spores allowing infection, and it's a very rapidly fatal disease. Fortunately, uh, although it does affect humans, you really, really have to be um, working with a dead carcass for some considerable time. Uh, and that's why traditionally it's been associated with uh, infections in veterinarians, abattoir workers, that type of thing. Finding it in in a flock in northern Victoria with only five sheep, is that relatively early detection? Well, the owner of this flock is, is to be commended. It is a known anthrax area. But you can uh, understand that when a disease is known to last for a, a long time in the, in the ground, uh, people do become particularly uh, aware of it. And the owner made an early notification that allowed very, very early diagnosis. But uh, because of the incubation period of the disease, uh, we have seen some more cases and may indeed see some more uh, over the coming days. Uh, But the premises is quarantined and um, any possibility of onward infection is very, very, very low. Victoria's Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Graham Cook with Warwick Long. Off to Katanning now for the results of the sheep sale. Tracy Kilner is there. How did it go today, Tracy? Um, numbers were up. 5,162 head for a total yarding of 15,705. Um, it was a mixed quality yarding with um, mixed prices as well. Store lambs gained with increased competition from feeder buyers chasing the lighter weight lambs. Live export and feeder buyers vied for the midweights and processors were active on heavyweight lambs selling to $223 a head. Mutton trended down with heavy ewes selling to $211 for crossbred ewes and weathers carrying a fleece topped at $220 a head. Score one, poorly presented sheep were discounted heavily with little interest from buyers. The lightweight lambs trended up on demand with fluctuations only on the poorly presented pens. Under 12 kilo carcass weight sold from $70 to $110 for crossbreds and from $20 to $108 for merino lambs. Weights under 16 kilos carcass weight made from $89 to $134. Heavier under 18 kilo carcass weight lambs returned $129 to $158. The trade weight lambs made $145 to $191 while heavy lambs sold from $190 to $223 a head. Processors purchased young merino ewes from $85 to $179 and weathers from $130 to $203. Crossbred hoggets sold from $110 to $190. The lightweight store ewes made from $30 for very light score one ewes up to $100 carrying a fleece. Medium weight prime ewes weighing under 30 kilos carcass weight returned $120 to $145. Heavyweight ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight sold from $175 to $211. Mature heavy weathers made from $169 to $220 a head. And mature rams eased on numbers selling from $30 to $106 a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. This in from Jim and Wilgo on the topic of fires. We're sick and tired of getting told to provide our vax proof to defest. They're wasting their time, the Shire's time and our time. It's a ridiculous mandate put in place by someone in an office in Perth. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.